So this fall, uh, my oldest son, Isaiah, is going to be going to college uh, for animation at Sheridan. And one of the things he had to do to prepare his portfolio for the animation program was something called a character rotation. So first you create an original character, and then you draw it from every angle. And uh, it was neat to kind of watch him do this and come up with different concepts and characters. And one of the things that he did for fun to kind of just develop the creative muscle was he would uh, put this thing out, put these votes out on Instagram and say, I'm going to create an original character, so tell me what you want, this or this, that or that, this or this, that or that. And everyone would kind of vote and care, and then he would create this character kind of based on popular consensus. When we consider modern conversations about God, they're very much like character rotations. Even uh, if you, as you examine the landscape of the church here in Canada, I'm speaking very broadly and I don't want to communicate like KW Redeemer is the only faithful church, so don't hear that tone. But I just want to speak very broadly and say it is a reasonable statement to say that even across the landscape of Christian faith and how the Bible is taught, how Christ is understood, how God is understood, it's very much like a character rotation. Well, here's kind of what I think he's like, and here's how I think he should be, and after all, this is my favorite thing, and this is how I choose to do my life, so I think God should be okay with that. I mean, essentially, it's like a God of our own construct is no God at all. If, in the end, as C.S. Lewis, the atheist writer turned Christian apologist would say, you know, if at the end the God of our construct agrees with us on all points, that's no God at all. And this morning is the Sunday after Easter. And during the Easter season, we look very carefully at what Jesus did as he was coming into Jerusalem, as, as the fickle crowds were shouting Hosanna, and five days later they were saying crucify him. And we're looking carefully at the things Jesus said, the things that he claimed. And what we have to conclude is, that he couldn't have just been a nice guy and a great teacher and the most important thing about Jesus wasn't just his teaching and if all of us just kind of create a God of our own construct and kind of, you know, worship him when we feel like it or whatever and just kind of take some of his teaching that everything's okay. What Jesus did as he was going to the cross was he, he made us choose. He, 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 he made Pilate and, and the high priest and everybody choose and say, you have to choose whether I'm, whether I'm the Lord or a lunatic, you got to choose whether you're going to crown me as king or you're going to crucify me as, as a lunatic. And not because God is an angry God who had his arms crossed and said, get your life right, but because our God is a God who came with his arms stretched out and gave himself for our life because we never get it right. Not because God is an angry ogre who said, would you clean yourself up so that I can accept you? But because our God came in Jesus Christ and lived the perfect life we could never live so that on the basis of faith in him we're accepted. So Jesus is this gracious king, this great paradox, this convergence of majesty and mercy. And so this morning as we consider our text, which is John chapter 20, we want to reflect on this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as many theologians have said, is the hinge on which all Christian faith swings. And maybe you're here today and you're thoughtfully exploring Christian faith and you find the resurrection hard to grasp, grappling with that. Maybe you're here and you've been in church your whole life. You're a teenager. You grew up in church your whole life, maybe. And you're finding, you have moments, you find the resurrection hard to grasp. You, you doubt. 
Well, our text today, John chapter 20, is good news for those who doubt. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and the place my finger and the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I'll never believe. Well, eight days later, the disciples were inside again. This time Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Now, many of us here who have been Christians for any length of time, we know what it's like to experience God's peace in dark times or a pervasive sense of joy in times of suffering, or we've experienced the undergirding strength that his presence brings or kind of soul-lifting power of his grace. We can think about these kinds of things. Christian faith, it benefits us in ways that are experiential. But Christian faith is not founded on something that is experiential. So something isn't true simply because of how it makes us feel. And if something is true, by its very definition, it's true regardless of how we feel. Christian faith isn't rooted in experience or ideology. Christian faith is rooted on the basis of this event in history that we've been talking about so heavily this Easter season, 33 A.D., Under Pontius Pilate and Roman rule, Jesus Christ was crucified on a Roman cross. And three days later, the tomb was empty, and that's just a historical fact. And the scriptures tell us, and we believe, that the reason it was empty was because Christ rose from the grave. You know, when I say it's a fact, and I say that so boldly, for some of you who, um, again, you're exploring faith, and you say, well, that's kind of bold to say it like that. It's a fact, a historical fact. It is. Uh, Tacitus is a Roman historian, and this is what Tacitus wrote Um, in 64 AD, he said, Christus suffered some extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in in Judea but here in Rome. And that mysterious superstition is the resurrection. So I'm not saying that Rome is confessing the resurrection. I'm saying that Roman history confesses the empty tomb. Later, uh, Flavius Josephus wrote this, Uh, In his Antiquities, 63 and 64, he wrote, About this time there lived a man, Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. 
The disciples said he was the Christ, and when Pilate had condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And on the third day uh, he appeared, they claimed restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. This is just history. And so we make these claims of trusting in faith, and we gather and we worship, not because we really, really, really hope something is true, but because it is. We believe it, we find great rest in it, and we think about the implications of it, because, because it is. See, the ongoing renewal in our hearts and our minds by the Spirit of God, that's subjective. But the once and for all rescue at the cross is objective. Our maturity before God as believers is in a constant state of change. But our status before God never changes. And so there is a subjective and ongoing work of renewal by the Spirit in all of us. But the objective work of Christ at the cross is what we place our hope and faith and trust in. And so it's important for us, it's important for our children, it's important for future generations to know what it is that we believe and why it is that we believe it. Um, you know, the most popular theory, of course, is that Christ's body was stolen. And uh, that's not a very reasonable argument, though, when you consider history, not just, not just Roman history, when you kind of read about uh, what life was like in those first three centuries of Rome when Paul was writing his letters under Nero by third century Domitian, things that were going on. Um, it's not reasonable to believe that they would give their lives for a hoax whatsoever. Rome didn't fool around when they were crucifying you. They were experts at it. You know, they were so, almost scientific about the way they killed you because they tried to drag it out as long as painfully as possible. Uh, so it's not, and then you look at texts like this and you realize what the passage that we just read, they're hiding behind locked doors. So it's kind of like, in the left corner, totalitarian Rome ruled a thousand years. And in the right corner, you know, 12, well, 11 now, ragtag guys scared for their life hiding behind uh, locked doors. They're not, it's not Jesus 11, you know, planning a great heist. That's not what's happening here. They're afraid. And so, of course, it's, of course it's natural that Rome would have doubted this resurrection. But this passage in John 20, with a very gritty honesty, it records one of the apostles doubting it. Records Thomas doubting it. And all of us have been doubters. And that's not a bad thing. Some of you kids, some of you doubt now. Doubts are a little bit like antibodies. I mean, you know, if you don't have any antibodies, the first little attack comes along and your whole body breaks down. And faith is a little like that too. That unless we kind of really wrestle with what we believe and why we believe it, and the first little attack comes, so, you know, uh, somebody makes an assertion, and next thing you know, it's game over. So doubts are not a bad thing, and which is all of us at one point. And what does Jesus do to the one who's in doubt? He moves towards him. So we look at this, and what's interesting to me is when Jesus comes, he doesn't call him Doubting Thomas, which is how we know this guy, right? Jesus doesn't appear in the room. Just like You and I would show up completely differently. We would just ride in on a lightning bolt like Thor, and uh, we would just be like, you know, angry. Uh, but Jesus doesn't call him Doubting Thomas. The scriptures don't call him Doubting Thomas. Some Christian, some, somewhere in history, attached his sin to his identity, which is the opposite of the gospel, and forever this poor man has been known as Doubting Thomas, which is interesting, because we don't do that with any of the other uh, biblical patriarchs, and all of them were failures too, right? We just say Abraham. We don't say, have my wife Abraham. You know, we don't call him that. We just say Moses, you know, we're not like anger management Moses. Right? Peter, not, you know, potty mouth Peter. King David, not peeping Tom David. We just, we just call them by their names. But this guy, 
did not luck out in church history. Verse 19, Jesus shows up. He says, peace be with you. Let that sink in. They slept in the garden of Gethsemane when he was going to the cross. Then they abandoned him. They ran. They fled. They, they turned, hid for their lives. Peter's warming himself by the enemy's fire. And a little girl says to him, hey, didn't I see with Jesus? And Peter's like, and he just curses her out. It's all there in the New Testament. Read it. You know, Jesus shows up and, and, he, and, and he doesn't say, you unfaithful, unbelieving, flip-flop and cowards. Which is probably what I would have said. Which is what you would have said too, so don't look at me with those judgmental eyes. Okay, verse 20. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, the disciples are glad when they see Jesus. He shows them the scars. Jesus comes into their fear. He comes into their doubt. This is God's grace on display. Our God comes to us when we least deserve it. He comes to us in our weakness. This is his grace. Our Jesus comes to restore unfaithful, unbelieving, flip-flopping cowards, which has been all of us at some point. You know, the disciples hid. They had no intention. They're, they're behind locked doors. They have no intention of sharing the gospel because they fear death. Just like you and I have no intention of sharing the gospel when we fear social death. This is cushy southern Ontario. On a global scale, we got it fantastic. Nobody's going to kill us this afternoon, you know, for our faith. And we're afraid to death. The worst thing that can happen to us is going to be, yeah, what's that? Or something, but yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just getting some help from my family from the front row. I, pre- I appreciate it. I should have consulted with you guys first when I that was a better analogy than mine. But anyways, so the disciples, you know, they hid just like we hide. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is strong and he comes to the weak, right? He comes and he makes them bold. We are weak, you know, may his spirit make us bold. But when Jesus appeared to the disciples... Thomas wasn't there, right? He missed the most important meeting, you know, the disciples had ever been in, right? He missed the meeting about the resurrection. That's a pretty important meeting to miss. But think about it, he's not there. How many of you kids, imagine how, how hard it would be for you to try and convey something and somebody doesn't believe you. After the service, the service is over and we are all having coffee and you stand where I'm standing and uh, your parents uh, run out to uh, get a drink of water and you throw a basketball and it goes all the way across the gym and it's a perfect swish. And then your parents come in and you're like, I just did this incredible thing. Did you say you didn't see it? And, and they're like, no, nah, I don't believe you. And you're like, no, I did it. I did it. And you're trying so hard to convince. I saw it. I saw it. It's true. It's real. I did. And they're like, no, nah, I don't believe you. They're like, unless I see the ball go through the, right? That, this is what is happening. The, this, this is an intense moment where they're trying to con, con, convey something that they have empirical and infallible evidence. And Thomas is like, I wasn't there. I wasn't there, so I can't believe it. This is the dilemma that they find, find themselves in. Jesus breathes on the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. Right? Thomas isn't there for that either. Right? This is a new creation. It, this whole thing, Jesus breathing on the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit, this is an inv- invitation to remember the original creation. On the sixth day of the week of creation, God creates man. On the sixth day of the week of the crucifixion, Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, Behold the man. On the seventh day of the week of creation, God rests from all of his creative work because it's finished. On the seventh day during the, during the crucifixion, Jesus rests in the grave because his redemptive work is finished. Adam sleeps, his side is pierced by the finger of God, and he gets his bride. 
Jesus sleeps the sleep of death. His side is pierced by a Roman spear. We, the church, come from his side. Blood and water flows, right? The blood for our purification, the water for our sanctification. We see this. Adam sins and blames his bride. Jesus dies for the sin of his bride. This whole passage is inviting us to remember Genesis. At creation, God breathed. Here, the Son of God breathes. At creation, God breathes and there's life. Here, Jesus breathes and the Spirit brings new life, the breath of God. It's inviting us to consider that Jesus is doing something new. That there's something that's now happened because of the resurrection. But Thomas missed that. And then Jesus gives his apostles a tremendous authority. He says, if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive sins, they're not forgiven. How does that work? Well, when you preach the gospel and people believe the gospel and they receive Christ, their sins are forgiven. So what Jesus is saying is, wherever you go and preach this gospel, sins can be forgiven. Wherever you go and withhold this gospel, the sins cannot be forgiven. But Thomas missed that. Thomas missed everything. Then eight days later, Jesus comes to Thomas. And what does Jesus say to Thomas? Peace. It's amazing. Not, hey, I hear there's a guy here named Doubting Thomas. Bring him. Bring the doubter that he may tremble in my presence and judgment. No. Jesus says, peace be with you. This is good news for those who doubt. Peace be with you. There is a patience and grace we can't fathom in Jesus. There is a love and forgiveness we can't grasp in Jesus. Jesus has more grace than you have sin. It's astounding. The apostle doesn't believe the gospel. The message of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the definition of the gospel. The apostle doesn't believe it. What does Jesus do? He comes to him in grace. What does he do for you and I when we struggle? He comes to us in grace. And let this encourage all of you who have children who've doubted or strayed. Because according to God's covenant grace, he continually moves towards us. Towards our children. To draw them by his great love, his covenant grace. So there's an important reason that Jesus comes to Thomas. I mean, it's, it's, it's core. It's, it's fundamental why Jesus comes to Thomas. See, Thomas can be a follower of Jesus, just like you and I can be a follower of Jesus without ever seeing the resurrected Jesus. You can be a follower of Jesus, but you can't be an apostle. All the apostles saw the resurrected Christ. The empirical evidence of the resurrected Jesus. The criteria for being an apostle was that you saw the resurrected Christ. When they were replacing Judas in Acts chapter 1, one of the things Peter said, and this is a direct quote from Acts chapter 1, is they have, whoever replaces this apostle has to have been with us since Jesus was baptized by John all the way up until we saw him in the resurrection. That person has to have been with us the whole time, received all of Jesus' teaching, And on top of that, seeing the resurrected Jesus, that person can replace Judas. That was the criteria. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. What's the church built on? What's this church built on? It's built on the apostles' doctrine, the witness of the apostles, that they saw the resurrected Christ. And it's built on the word of the prophets, that Christ would come and take away our sin. And the final thing it says is, Christ is the chief cornerstone. Which is why, if you've been at Redeemer for any length of time, I'm trying to be a mockingbird up here, pointing you to Jesus every Sunday, because he is the cornerstone of the church, and he is the hope for your soul, and he is the one not only who takes away your sins and rescue, but by the power of a spirit in you brings you renewal, 
the promise of an eventual restoration, it transforms how you relate to the day-to-day. That's what the church is built on. So Jesus comes to Thomas because Thomas cannot be an apostle unless he gets this gift. Do you see this? So the guy who doesn't deserve it the most, Christ comes to him and gets it. And that is a picture of all of us. Romans chapter uh, 5 says to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and he came to us. He comes to those who don't deserve it. And this is good news for all who doubt. And so Thomas already had the teachings of Jesus. But he did, and he wouldn't need a one-on-one encounter with the resurrected Jesus if Christianity was all about the teachings of Jesus. That's the modern conversation. Let's just make it about the, the teachings of Jesus. But no, no, no. Teaching is about you and how you should live. The gospel is about Christ and the life that he lived. Teaching is about you and teaching faithfully guides you and it's good. But Christ, the one who saved you, that's good news. Thomas already had the teaching, but he didn't have the good news. And the mission of the apostles was to bring the good news. The good news is why any Christian even desires the teaching. And so Jesus comes in this way. But the modern mindset says, well, you know, I don't know. Why don't we just take the good things Jesus said and did, kind of like an ancient hipster. We like that guy. Let's take that, and that's as far as we really need to take it. That's the most important thing. That's what the modern mindset says. Let's not get into a bodily resurrection, because if Jesus was resurrected bodily, then that means that he was the Lord, and let's not talk about that, because then we have to talk about sin, and we don't want to talk about sin, because if we talk about sin, then we also got to talk about the eternal trajectory of those who trust in Christ and those who don't. So now you're into heaven and you're into hell. And I don't know if we want to talk about heaven and hell. And I don't want to think about that. In fact, I don't want to think about any of this too deeply. So let's just say Christian faith is just about the teachings of Jesus. No! No! One more time for the kids that are taking notes. No! It can't be that. Thomas already had that. Of course I desire the teachings of Jesus. I've given my life to, to wanting to convey the goodness and the wise, wise um, wisdom of the teachings of Jesus. But that's all fundamentally found in the radicality of the resurrection and the grace of Jesus. It's precisely because of the grace of Jesus that we desire the teachings of Jesus. It's precisely because of the resurrection of Jesus that we say, I want to live a life of imitation to Jesus. And so we can't disembowel Christianity and say, let's just make it about the teachings. No, if it was just about the teachings, Jesus would have never showed up for Thomas. He's like, you've been with me for three years. You got the teachings. You're good. You're not good. None of us are Christians because we follow the teachings of Jesus. Nobody's a Christian because they follow the teachings of Jesus. We're Christians because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We're Christians because our trust and hope is that all of our sins are gone because of the work of Jesus. And that is what makes us say, okay, I want to realign. I'm not going to do a character creation of God. I'm not going to do a character creation of the Bible and just turn it from every angle the way I like it. No, I'm not doing an original character creation of any of this. I'm going to bend my knee to all of it because he's the Lord. The most reasonable thing I can do is to give my life to the one who gave his life for me not in an earning way i don't need to earn anything but from sheer delight and from sheer joy and so this is the uh, what we see in this grace of jesus coming in and uh coming to thomas in verse 27 Peter, jesus says put your fingers here you know and then thomas is rebuked he says stop doubting and believe 
Stop doubting what? Stop doubting, the core, stop doubting the core message of Christianity, which is my resurrection. He wasn't doubting the teachings. He had the teachings. He doubted the resurrection. That's the whole point. That's the core. Jesus rebuked him. He says, stop believing and believe. You see, as we truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you know, the spirit-driven byproduct of that, of course, is that we'll worship him. And so, you know, Thomas, after this, Thomas doesn't touch the scars. You're all like, wait a minute. Yes, he has. I've seen him. I've seen him. <laughs> I've seen the paintings. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah, they weren't there uh, painting that, by the way. Just a free tip. So Thomas doesn't. So read the, read the text. Jesus goes, go ahead. And Thomas' response is, my Lord and my God. It's like Thomas has this epiphany of like, I've put all these conditions on you. Oh, I'll believe if you do this, God. Oh, I'll believe. I'm going to hold out. If God does this thing, then I'll believe. It's like Thomas has this moment where he's like, I don't need to. I believe. You've given me all the empirical evidence that I need. And of course, the apostles, like, unlike the rest of us, they got all of the empirical, existential, you know, physical evidence that they needed. In that sense. We have, we, we, there's an evidence that we have too, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. There's a reason why we can believe without needing the resurrected Christ to show up in our, in our living rooms this afternoon. But, but he, responds, he responds with, my Lord and my God. You see, here's the other thing we, that I think we want to consider about Thomas' response. Jesus is coming with all this grace. Thomas totally doubts the whole time. And Jesus keeps coming right through all of his doubt and all this grace. Who told Jesus? Thomas has got to be wondering that, right? It was probably you, potty mouth Peter. You know, you told Jesus, hey, Thomas is a doubter. We should call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas doesn't believe he resurrected from the dead. Who told you? No, nobody told Jesus. You read the text, nobody told Jesus. Jesus wasn't there. Thomas realizes that Christ is divine, that he is God. And he has been watching his failure, and he's been listening to his failure, and despite all his failure, he just comes right towards him in grace in the middle of all of his failure. And that undoes Thomas, and that will undo you, and that will undo me. When we recognize that we've got a Savior and a Lord who doesn't say, clean up your life. We have a Savior and a Lord who came and gave his life. And it undoes Thomas just like it undoes us. Loves him through it. And then Jesus goes on to say, blessed are those who believe and have not yet seen. You know, and how can we, how can we do that? How can we believe Having not yet seen. A lot of people are like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a thoughtful person. I'm a scientific and reasonable person. And so I need to see something. It's got to be empirically proven for me to believe it. And yet, though, here's what I would gently challenge you to consider. Is that you actually take a lot of things on faith. Um, for example, you know, if, you, you know, if you are uh, of, the, of the mind that there is no God and that we are here through natural evolutionary processes. I mean, that, that whole theory is a, it is a theory. So you're embracing that by faith, right? So not to be facetious, but I believe in the virgin birth, and you believe in the virgin birth of the universe. So pick your miracle, kind of, right? Um, your memory works, but you have no way of empirically proving that to me, or anybody, that your memory works. Um, you're conscious of the self, right? Psychologists and scientists can study the mind, there's a lot neuroscience gives us, and I've got to stay in my lane, so I'm going to be a theologian and not talk about that. But I'm simply going to say, you can't look at consciousness under a microscope. You can't, there's many things about the human experience that you're taking by faith. Okay. And so, 
When we place our faith in Christ, we're not checking our brains at the door. We're using our reason, of course, but you can't just come to Christ by reason. It's a gift. Faith is a gift. And, uh, and, it, and this gift of faith in Christ is so satisfying intellectually and emotionally. See, if you're like Epicurus was the first philosopher, first Greek philosopher who essentially gave us naturalism, right? Epicurus says, there's nothing after death. You don't exist, so don't fear death because it's all over. Okay, so if that's true, let me ask you a question. You can, intellectually, you can intellectually wrap your mind around that, that you don't exist anymore, and everybody who loves won't exist, and eventually the sun will burn out and nothing will exist. You can wrap your mind around that, but is that at your core, is that satisfying? Or maybe you're not naturalist in that sense, and you're kind of more like most culturally, globally speaking, most people believe in the afterlife and some sort of, you know, ethereal spirit or God. But if, if in the end you die and you become stardust and you're kind of part of the universe and it's not really you... Is that satisfying? See, what Thomas got, what all the disciples got, what over 500 people, as we explore these texts over the next few weeks, what they got in the resurrected Christ was something that was both intellectually stimulating and emotionally satisfying because when Christ showed up, it was really him. Which means when we are raised, united to Christ, it's really us. That the Christian faith is not trying to escape the material. It's the restoration of the material. See, the resurrection of Jesus, that's, that shows you God's end game. That's that everything's coming full circle. He creates everything in perfection. Our sin brought damnation. Jesus Christ offers redemption. And in the end, there's restoration. It's full circle. That's why the, by the thousands, the first century Greeks and Romans embraced the resurrection of Christ as the floods of eyewitnesses were saying we've seen the resurrected Lord and then they contemplated what the resurrection meant that the trajectory of your life is not death in a grave you're not stardust and you're not compost you're risen united to Christ the story of the end of your life is not that everything you love and everything you say matters is over but that it's restored just as Jesus restored Thomas just as Jesus was bodily restored all of creation will be restored we will be restored and that, friends, will change you day to day and how you love and give and serve and how you're able to be sacrificial and kind of relate to the world around you. And church, we want to we never forget these implications, which is why I'm trying to be a mockingbird on the gospel. Because when we, when we find ourselves in worry and distress and when we find ourselves ruminating over problems and afraid about money or our health or we get bitter or offended or discouraged or angry, when these things begin to kind of consume our lives, to borrow from Dr. Paul Tripp, it's like we've, we've become gospel amnesiacs. It's like we forgot the gospel, not the details of the gospel, we forgot the implications of the gospel and we're living like Christ never rose and we're living like he's not going to restore all things and we're living like we're not God's children safe in his hand. And the truth is that united to Christ by grace and faith, you are God's child safely in his hand. That he has promised to provide for you, care for you. And that is the truth of his word. And so I close with this. If you're struggling with the truth of the resurrection, if you're struggling with doubts, be encouraged because you're in good company. Right? Thomas walked with Jesus and he witnessed the miracles of Jesus and he had the teachings of Jesus and he still struggled with it. So if you're struggling, you're in good company. But you want to know something? There's someone here today that Thomas did not have that day. The Holy Spirit. Not a force, 
not a mystical thing, a person. And after Christ ascended and the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit is here. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead that day will open the eyes of your heart to believe the gospel this day. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray.